The scripture reading tonight um, comes from 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. Wherefore, laying aside all malice and all guile and hypocrisies and envies and all evil speakings, as newborn babes desire the sincere milk of the word, that ye may grow thereby. If so, by, if so be ye have tasted that the Lord is gracious, to whom coming as unto a living stone, disallowed indeed of men, but chosen of God and precious. Ye also as lively stones are built up a spiritual house and an holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God by Jesus Christ. Wherefore also it is contained in the scripture, Behold, I lay in Sion a chief cornerstone, elect, precious, and he that believeth on him shall not be confounded. Unto you, therefore, which be believe, he is precious, but unto them which is disobedient. The stone which the builders disallowed, the same is made the head of the corner, and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. Even to them which stumble at the word, being disobedient, whereunto also they were appointed. But ye are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a peculiar people, that ye should shew forth the praises of him who hath called you out of darkness into his marvelous light, which in time past were not of people, but are now the people of God, which had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. Dearly beloved, I beseech you as strangers and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lust, which war against the soul, having your conversation honest among the Gentiles, that whereas they speak against you as evildoers, they may be they may by your good works, which they shall behold, glorify God in the day of visitation. Well, we're already into part three of our nine-part series from First Peter, and we're going to make it halfway through chapter 2 tonight. We're going to take a week off next week so we can have our uh, elder-led prayer night, and then we'll follow up in November and December to finish the series. And uh, so far we have looked at, uh, we're asking a question of how do Christians uh, navigate life in a culture that is um, seeming, seemingly non-Christian. And one of the results of a non-Christian society when people are Christians is that Christians stand out. They have a different worldview. They have a different mindset. Um, they have a different hope. They have a different belief system. And sometimes those belief systems, those values are misunderstood, misrepresented, and sometimes attacked and you suffer for them. And so the question then is, how will we as Christians navigate a non-Christian culture um, as we move into that uh, here in the Western part of the world, uh, namely in America? So far, we've seen that we've got to have a solid foundation. And that foundation, if we're going to be Christian in a non-Christian culture, has to be more than just everybody around us agrees with us. For a long time in Christianity, that was the firm foundation that Christians stood on. We're all kind of the same. We all kind of agree on what we should agree on. We, we think about the same things, and so we felt secure in that. And as that sort of mold is eroding, what's left is, what are we standing on? And we said two weeks ago, that our surest foundation is our hope in the coming world, in the coming perfection of us as well, sealed by the resurrection of Jesus. And then 
We said last week that our call, what we were called to do was be obedient to Jesus Christ. You know, that's the ultimate end of Jesus coming was to take the obedience that you are offering to somebody else, not God, and transfer that back to God. Give that back to the rightful owner and your life will be made right in that. And if we would learn to have a hope and obedience, we will certainly know how to navigate this world. Well, tonight we're going to look at a purpose of ours, a purpose of Christians. But what I want to call your attention to first is dead center in the text that Lawrence read for us. Right in the middle, Peter pauses from giving Christians instruction. That's really what a lot of chapter 2 is. He's writing to Christians, dear Christians, do this. Dear Christians, think about this. You ought to be behaving this way. And he pauses in all of his instruction to Christians in verse 6. And he says something about the independent work of God. You know, there are things that are dependent upon us, like like our faith and response to God that makes things happen in our lives. But then there are things that God does that are independent of human belief. God acts and it happens. Creation is a great example of that. None of us made creation happen. God spoke and it came about. Salvation is another great example where God, independent of our reaction to it, made it available. Well, here's what Paul's, I'm sorry, Peter says, Starting in verse 6, you see that he says, this stands in Scripture. This is foundational in Scripture. Regardless if you decide to believe this, what he's about to say or not, this thing right here will stand. It is solid in Scripture. And he says that the independent work of God to us was that God in his holy place, this place called Zion, which is representative of God's holy dwelling where God is, He says, Behold, I am laying in Zion, this is God, a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious. You know, that statement does not depend upon you believing it or you doing anything to make it happen. God is speaking in the first person saying what he is going to do, independent of us. And he stands there and he says, I, God, am going to lay in Zion, my holy city, a cornerstone. And this cornerstone is going to, and a lot of different things it's going to do, but one thing in particular our text says is that this cornerstone, once it's placed, will separate people who are called believers and people who are not believers. People who buy into this cornerstone and people that don't. Those who do not believe, Peter says, will be offended at this cornerstone. And they uh, will stumble in their life, meaning that they won't always know where they're going. They won't always have a vision of where they're headed. And they're going to stumble through things in life because they're not going to have a clear concept of where they're headed to. These people that don't believe, they're going to be offended at this cornerstone. What you find most, if I were to modernize that language for us, what I find most of the time with people is that the idea of Jesus and who he is is offensive to them because he doesn't align with what they expect from a Savior. And what we find is that this is true both inside the church and outside the church. That there are a lot of good-minded, well-behaved, religiously active people that actually when they come to who the real Jesus is, find him to be kind of offensive in what he asks out of us. And so when you come to this cornerstone, remember the cornerstone is the one that sets the, the trueness of the building. 
And it's the one that the foundation then is built off of. So when the stones come to the cornerstone, those stones must comply with the cornerstone. And those that come to this cornerstone and what he stands for and who he is and find him offensive because he doesn't really represent what they would like to see in a Savior. But to those who believe, this is what we want to focus on tonight. For those who believe, who accept Jesus all the way, who buy in and say, yes, he is God, he is Lord, there is a special opportunity for you. That if you'll come to Jesus as a living stone, see him as the cornerstone, and believe in him, buy in all the way, that there's, he says that there is a special opportunity that awaits. Look in verse, I believe it's, um, yeah, verse 7. To those who believe, he says, he will not be put to shame. Now in verse 7, the honor is for you who believe. The honor. What do you think? Why would Peter bring this in here? Why would, he, why would he make this statement that those who believe in Jesus Christ, does that mean that they're going to get honor? Um, I don't think Peter would be meaning that in this context because the whole book is about the fact that you're going to be shamed and ridiculed and mocked for being a Christian. So if you believe, it doesn't mean that all those around you will begin just to honor you and glorify you for doing that. What he's talking about here is those who believe are absolutely honored that God would fold them into His greatest work on earth. You mean to tell me that God is going to let us participate with Him in what He is doing in the earth? That's the honor. That's like saying and somebody invites you to be in their wedding and maybe they pick a low-cost tux or a dress, right? And it, I'm just kidding. You guys never been in weddings before? You know how expensive those are? Anyway, all right, I'll try later. Catch me about 10 minutes. I'll see if I can make you laugh. And somebody invites you to be in their wedding, you say, oh, it's an honor to be in your wedding. And what that means is the honor bestowed on that person is that they've been invited to participate in something special. And so Peter says that there is honor for those who will believe in this cornerstone. Those who believe, they are honored because they can't believe they get to participate. You see, people who participate in God's work have always been called a special name in the Bible, and that name is priest. Priest shows up all through Scripture. In fact, we see him all the way back in Genesis when Melchizedek shows up, even before the law of Moses. A priest was anyone, is anyone, pardon me, who mediates between God and people. In the Old Testament, we see priests, they offer sacrifices to God. They perform the rites of the religion. Uh, the priests also taught God's people the law. This was before the scribes and the Pharisees did it in Second Temple um, Judaism. The, the priests were the ones that were the teachers, the main teachers of God's people. They weren't always the evangelizers, uh, but they were the teachers of God's people. Uh, and they were also the people that were charged with praying for discernment of God's will for the nation. So when the nation of Israel needed direction, it was the priests that were called upon to pray to God for direction. So that's what the priests did. They, for the people, would both bring the people into the presence of God as they would take their sacrifices and bring the, bring, bring the people into God's presence. But the priest also brought God's presence to the people. It's a really interesting thing if you look at uh, first century architecture in the Roman world. Um, you know, all temples were actually pretty small on the inside. In fact, worshipers would come, they would bring their sacrifice, they would give it to the priest, but the worshipers didn't go inside of the building. 
They stayed outside, and the priest would then carry that into the building to then perform the, the sacrifice of the offering to God. And all of a sudden, now Christianity comes along, and this great idea happens in Christianity, this great concept. It's called the universal priesthood of all believers. So we've got kind of a problem just from an architectural standpoint. We all can now, through the high priest, approach the throne. And so you see building up in in the Roman world, actually, buildings that didn't look like temples anymore, but they were called basilicas, which was a main meeting hall of the Roman court. So it was a huge place for all people to come into. And so uh, this is what priests did. Specifically under the Old Covenant, the priests were of the tribe of Levi, uh, specifically even down the line of Aaron. And when the land was distributed, when Israel came into the land of Canaan, remember when the land was distributed uh, to the different tribes? The Levites weren't given an inheritance of land. They were then distributed throughout all the rest of the tribes to continue to bring God's presence to the whole nation. Can you see why Peter, calling Christians elect exiles of the dispersion into the world, would then introduce to us the concept that we're priests? That we don't have an inheritance right here in this land, but what we have is a dispersion into the whole world to mediate the presence of God for people and people into the presence of God. So you see why Peter would do this. So um, the purpose of the Christian is to be a priest. And to those who see Jesus as chosen and precious, the idea of being a priest of God is the highest honor, that he would invite us into the work of him in his world. So here's what our text will do for us tonight. Three things. How you become a priest... Number two, the work of a priest. Number three, the life of a priest. It's pretty simple the way it breaks down. It actually works out pretty well with the scripture. Um, So let's get into that. Let's talk about, first of all, becoming a priest. This will, a lot of this will be review, but I want to show you how Peter keeps his themes alive as he's preaching, as he's teaching us. Um, In verses one through three, Peter says, put away all malice and deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander. Like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. Now, in these first three verses, Peter is doing something that Paul does a lot of times. What he's doing is layering his motivations. You see, there's several causative motivations in this first part of the text, saying that um, longing for milk makes you grow up into the maturity, putting away... um, uh, putting away the malice and deceit and those things is what makes you long for. But when you get down to the last sentence in verse 3, what we find is the base root of our motivation. That, that This is what's going to cause you to, to go down the line of becoming a priest. This is the thing that will spark for you finally spiritual growth. He's getting down to the root cause of spiritual growth, the base motivation. He says in verse 3, If you have tasted that the Lord is good. You see, this motivation, tasting that the Lord is good, will move you to action to become a priest in the kingdom of God. You see, Peter uses a really, I would say, fantastic sensory word to describe how you discover that God is good. Peter doesn't use, you learn that God is good. He doesn't say you come along and figure out that God is good. He doesn't say that you come to know. He doesn't even say that I'm longing for you to see that God is good. 
He uses a sensory word that is so powerful. He says, I want you to taste that God is good. Taste. You see, what Peter is doing is intending for you to know that discovering God's goodness requires experience. I tell this to my kids all the time. Um, it's funny, I, I, my, both my kids are really picky eaters, really picky eaters. And, um, you know, they, they will eat chicken. And then, you know, occasionally I've stretched the truth on that to them about what food really is so that they'll eat it. And then when we're done, I tell them what it really is. And, you know, for like a month, we ate pork chops and they thought it was chicken. And then I finally told them and I did that with white fish with Elena one time. You know, I was like, just she was eating and eating it. And I was like, that's actually fish. And then she after she learned, she says she doesn't like it anymore. And so I say to my kids all the time, what if the first time you looked at chocolate, you decided you didn't like it? Like, what would happen? You know, they, they do that with food all the time. They, they've never tried something before. They look at it, and they're like, I'm not going to eat that. And I'm like, why? I don't like it. We've never tried it. I, I don't like it. Well, what would happen if you did that with something like an ice cream sandwich? Like, you just looked at it, and you're like, I don't like that. You see, to taste something actually requires full commitment to the experience to find out if it's good. You can take food and you can smell it. it smells good. That's, that's a marginal investment to smell something. You know, so there's some things out there that don't smell good. There's a marginal investment of much smaller in seeing it. There's some food that looks really good. There's some food that doesn't look good. But what Peter is saying here is that there is a commitment to taste requires this full commitment of experience to see if it's good. So what were they tasting? And this is what takes us back to our review in chapter 1, verse 3. You see, what, what is the thing that God was offering for them to taste, right? If, if we're going to figure out the analogy, then what is God offering for you to literally experience and taste to see if God is good or not? I think it goes back to chapter 1, verse 3, when he says that by the mercy of God, he has caused us to be born again. That's living experience to a living hope. Christian hope based upon the resurrection of Jesus Christ is what we're supposed to taste. Living your life with the Christian hope as your base foundation of hope. Have you ever tried that? Do you think that you live Monday to Friday with the real Christian hope as your base foundation of hope, which you really long for. You know, uh, we have a lot of trivial hopes, like we say things like working for the weekend or, you know, it's just wait until five o'clock hits, kind of stuff like that. You know, those, those are minimal kind of trivial hopes. But do you live with the base foundation of your hope being that there will be someday a world that is right, where all wrongs are right, and a me that is finally right? Do you believe that? You see, the Christian hope is the only hope that can both soothe you when you suffer and motivate you when you become complacent. It does both of those things. Think about it. When you suffer, the Christian hope says you can trust God. It's going to be okay. In fact, the wrongs that you experience someday will be right. In fact, there's nothing nothing that is big enough in this world for you to experience that can trump the ultimate goal of where you're going. That's what the Christian hope says. So it has the capacity to soothe you when you suffer. And at the same time, the Christian hope has the power to motivate you when you become complacent. You see, as you think about heaven, 
As you think about this concept of Christian heaven, that we're going to a place that is going to be perfect, without flaw, without disease, without brokenness, without sin. As you think about that, does it excite you? Does it make you want that? As you think about a person like your own self ridding all the sin that makes you um, do things that you wish you didn't do, that wrestling like Paul said in Romans 7, that you the things you want to do you don't do. As you think about that day when you will shed this, that keeps you from being the real you. Does that excite you? Then you think about what Jesus prayed when he was teaching us to pray. When he said, God, let your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. You see, the doctrine of heaven soothes you when you suffer, but it motivates you when you become complacent. It draws you in and says, I want heaven so bad that I'm going to work with all my might to bring as much of heaven to my world where I live right now. So I'm going to work that way. I'm going to relate to people like it's heaven. I'm going to treat myself as if I'm journeying to heaven. Okay, so that's what the Christian hope does. And so tasting to see if God is good requires actually experiencing a day, a week of living with the Christian hope as your foundational hope. And so what you've got to do is test the Christian hope first. Do you believe it's true based upon the resurrection of Jesus? Do you believe that what I've put forth to you is true? And then you've got to actually try it. If you struggle with this, Maybe it sounds kind of good on Sunday, but, it, but you want it to affect your Monday. Just think about for a moment. Just try a day. Like give yourself a reasonable expectation. Today, I'm going to try to keep in the forefront of my mind by the power of prayer and God that I am going to a place and I will be a person that is finally right. And watch that settle you and motivate you, stabilize you, and move you. Try it. That's what the Christian hope does. And there's no other hope in the world that can do this. And so he says, those that have take, those who take action, um, who have this hope, I'm sorry, are those that take action. Look at the comparison here. In verse 1 he says, put away. And then uh, at the beginning of verse 2, like newborn infants, long for. You see this putting away and longing for? What he's saying is that there is an obedience to God. That is not based upon drudgery or fear or social expectation, but there is a obedience to God that is so deeply rooted in the Christian hope that you are honored to be part of what God is doing. And that's the kind of obedience that God wants. Do you see what he's done? He's weaved hope and obedience back into his text. Okay, so that's how we become a priest. Let's look at the work of a priest. There's two things quickly we'll look at. The first one is verses 4 and 5. He says that a priest offers spiritual sacrifices in the spiritual house this is the new temple of god it's built on the cornerstone of jesus christ we as living stones are building up to make the temple of god meaning that god resides now not in a building but in our heart it within us and inside of this place you and i bring spiritual sacrifices to god and in this new house is where we offer them um, the idea of spiritual sacrifices, though, when I was studying this, I, I thought, you know, Peter, that's pretty vague for me. What, what is a spiritual sacrifice, right? Like, what does he actually mean that I offer spiritual sacrifices? So I started to trace that through the New Testament. Let me give you just a couple to think about. Philippians 4 says that we, when we provide for people's needs, like when Paul had his needs provided for uh, by the Philippians, 
He said that that was an offering, a sacrifice to God. So when we do that for people, that's a spiritual sacrifice. Philippians 2, he said that our faith, the fact that you have faith in the resurrected Jesus Christ, that you say, I trust Jesus, not myself to stand before God, is a sacrifice to God. It's an offering to God. He, Ephesians 5 says, just in the same way that Jesus did, when we, out of love, lay down ourselves for the sake of somebody else, that is like a sweet-smelling aroma or a sacrifice to God. In Romans 12, he says that our entire body, our life, being laid on the altar is a sacrifice. And in verse 2, I think he gets to the core of what a spiritual sacrifice is. <clears throat> he says that it's our mind. That, God, I, I'm all in, finally. That I'm going to believe what you believe. I'm going to trust what you trust. I'm going to think what you think. And I'm going to let my mind no longer be shaped by the words of the world, but by you. I'm going to offer my mind on the altar of God so that it can be shaped. And so I think this term is vague by Peter because now in the priestly order that we experience in the New Testament, our whole self and what we offer becomes the spiritual offering to God. Your work, the way you work right now. Sometimes we have such a disconnect between our work. Our work can be an offering to God if we work the way that he wants us to work. Our love towards people, our service, our relationships, our words, our prayers, our faith, our fidelity with each other, the ministry that we put our hands to do, all of it, if we are priests, becomes an offering to God. All of it. Two, think, two key things to remember about you being a priest and offering sacrifices to God. Number one, sacrifices are offered to God, not to people. So when you serve somebody, you're not offering a sacrifice to that person. So if I serve you today or you serve me, who you have offered that to is God, not me. So what that does for you is my response has nothing to do with how you feel, right? Do you see how that works? If you're a priest and your offerings are all to God and I, you serve somebody and they have all the gratitude in the world, that's great. That's their offering to God, gratitude. But if you serve somebody and they say, wish you would have done more it still was offered to God, and God accepted it. Do you see that? All your offerings are to God. Number two, these offerings are not sin offerings. They're thank offerings. Your prayers, your faith, your service, your love, your sacrifice, your work, all of that is not your offering to God to atone for yourself. These are not sin offerings. These are not trying to remove a debt that you have with God. Because if you use those things as an opportunity or trying to remove your debt, you are taking Jesus and saying, no thanks to your offering, I'll do it on my own, by my works, by what I do. These are not sin offerings. These are gratitude offerings based upon His grace. Now the second thing He says that priests do in verses 9 and 10 is we not just offer spiritual sacrifices, but we also, verse 9, proclaim the excellencies of God. So priests offer to God all, this, all the offerings and sacrifices, but they also proclaim to those around them how excellent God is. Now, you can understand that this would be incredibly difficult if you actually haven't experienced God's excellency. If you don't see God as being excellent, your role as a priest is going to be drastically limited in this role to tell to people how great God is if you just really haven't Seen him as great. That's why point number one, becoming a priest matters, experiencing it. Okay? 
So for an honest moment, right, we really want to do this, you've got to look in for a moment and say, do I actually enjoy God? Do I find His company to be excellent? Like when you wake up in the morning and you're like, you know what, I should have some quiet time before I head off to work. Do you find His presence in prayer to be something that you crave and enjoy? When you're driving and you're just tired of listening to the radio and you punch it off for a minute and it's kind of quiet and it's beautiful outside, do, do you, you see what I'm pressing, I, I'm struggling to say it, but do you see what I'm getting at? Do, do you enjoy God? Do you like Him? Do you find Him to be a decent being to be around? Do you even know that He's with you? Do you enjoy Him, not just His gifts? Do you really enjoy Him? Think about the people that you enjoy the most that you don't want to just take from or get from, that you just love to be around them. Don't care what you're doing. You know, having coffee, playing Uno, or just watching TV, you just love to be around them. Do you feel that way about God? You see, the subject matter is about God. You proclaim God, His excellency. But it is so incredibly personal. Listen to Peter's language. He says that you were in darkness, now you're in light. You were not a people, now you're His people. You had no mercy. Now you have mercy. Do you see how personal that is? You will struggle as a priest of God to proclaim His excellency if all you do is quote Scripture to people, but you have nothing to say about how you were in darkness, now you're in light. How you were not in His family, but now you are. How you know what it's like to be outside of mercy because you've messed up and you have mercy now. All you, if all you do is bark at people verses from the Bible, but you don't proclaim that he's excellent, people won't listen. They just won't listen. And you won't be a priest of God. You'll most likely be a priest of yourself. Okay, what's the life of a priest like? Verses 11 and 12. Verse 11, he says that we've got to be pure. Purity of self, because the priest knows that he, had, he or she had former passions Chapter 1 said that we're informed by our ignorance, meaning we didn't know about divine things. And we learned about the resurrection of Jesus and the coming of him for the kingdom of God. And we learned about that. We said, I'm living out of my passions that are ignorant. And so the priest knows this. Look in verse 11. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles, abstain from the passions of the flesh. Why? Because they wage war against your soul. You see, the priest is dedicated to purity, not because he's trying to earn something with God, but because he or she knows that without purity, my soul, which means my true self, is destroyed. My body might not be as I participate in the lust of the flesh. You might not harm your body. As you indulge in sin, your body might be fine. Sometimes it actually gets healthier, you know, as you maybe are addicted to certain things. But you know that your soul will be And for the priest, that's the thing in him that he has just begun to meet, his true self, who we really are, the the us that was made in God's image, the soul. And as Jesus said, nothing has greater value than your soul. And you had to say, do I believe this? And if you really don't believe that, that the true me, my soul, has utmost value, that I would be willing to have control to abstain from fleshly lust because I don't want to lose my soul, what's real about me, what's made in the image of God, 
Maybe you haven't tasted who your true self is. So he says there's purity of self in yourself because you want to preserve and grow what's true about you, your soul. But in verse 12, he also says that we need to have our conduct honorable. So we've got to have honorable conduct, not just in ourselves, for ourselves, but for those around us. Here we see the suffering that the priest will endure. Peter says that they will speak against you. But look at, the, look at the order of which the things that, the, that those Gentiles, those that are outside, will do. He says that they speak, they see, and then they will glorify. He says that they speak evil against you, but then they see your good conduct. They don't hear your rebuttal. They see your good conduct. They see, or I'm sorry, they speak against you. They see your life. And I don't know when, but someday, as Paul promised, that even at the descent of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. Someday. It might happen tomorrow for somebody. It might not happen until Jesus returns, but our response as priests is honorable conduct amongst the world so that when they speak against us, they will see our conduct and someday they will glorify God because that's the ultimate object of a priest, that all people would know God. All right. So how can we do this? Let's look at verse 4 and we're all done. What will drive you if you're just not there? Let's say this all sounds good. You like the way it comes together. You see it, but you're just not there. What will drive this in you if you're just being honest with yourself, saying, I don't feel motivated. I don't feel energized yet. Peter tells you in verse 4, he says there's something you have to do. And it's pretty simple. He says you've got to come to him. Come to him. That means approach him. That means to look at Jesus. You've got to come and stare at him. But the question is how, right? How, how do you come to him? How do you approach him? Because when you approach somebody, there's different ways. You know, you approach uh, royalty different than you approach maybe your friend or your spouse or your kids. How do you approach Jesus? How? Well, first of all, he says you approach him as a living stone. I encourage you again, I'm not going to stop beating this drum. You've got to think about the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Is it real? Is this stone, Jesus Christ, living, or is it a dead stone that built a dead religion or a living Savior that's still alive? Is he alive? You've got to think about the resurrection. And I'll, I'll feed you all kinds of stuff if you want to think more about it. You've got to think about the resurrection, first of all. Second of all, he says you've got to come to him as a rejected stone. You've got to understand what he experienced for you, the ultimate rejection, so that you would never be rejected anymore. You've got to understand that when he came to earth and then when he lived his life, he experienced shame and reproach. He went through all of that. That he took upon himself and he absorbed all of the shame that you and I should experience. He felt that in the ultimate moment in the Garden of Eden when he was there with his father. He said, let this cup pass from me. I don't want to drink this cup. What he's going to have to drink to the bitter dregs was the bitterness of the wrath of God ultimate rejection so that you and I would not have to be rejected anymore. Do you understand that principle of Jesus Christ? That he was rejected so you wouldn't have to be. When you see him as living and rejected, I think you'll do what Peter says of the third one. You'll finally see him as precious, a precious stone. One that you would say, I'm willing to build my life on him. I come to you. I'm a living stone now. You've brought into my life a living hope. I'm alive. I don't know where to go or what to do. Hewn me and shape me and carve me. But where this cornerstone lays, 
I will align myself to that cornerstone and I'm yours to be built into your temple to offer sacrifices to you because I believe in what's to come. You want to navigate a non-Christian culture? You've got to have a non-Christian mind, or a Christian mind, pardon me, to think about life from the way that Jesus has presented it to us. If you need to do that, we're here to help. You can come as we stand and sing.